Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather. From Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. My assumption when I was was traveling around Brazil was logistics was the issue. Texas Tech University professor Dr. Darren Hudson. Getting the crop out, getting it long lines at Santos, you know, all these other things. And as I, as I traveled around, you know, the, the country and I would ask Jenners and, you know, farmers and, you know, you know, what's your number one issue? Thinking I can't get my crop or can't get fertilizer. That's it. Labor. Labor is my number one issue. Um, and, you know, w- which is a very, very similar story that we see in the U.S., right? So I, I think there are more complex issues at play as well that they're going to have to, Brazil has to struggle through like we're having to struggle through in terms of labor supply, the ability to have truckers, the, the, you know, all the different elements. It's not just the quality of the roads or the quality of the port. You're listening to Agriculture Today. I went over to the Department of Agriculture, met with the Minister of Agriculture yesterday afternoon. Doug McCallop is the Chief Ag Negotiator, U.S. Trade Representative's Office, before the U.S. Grains Council in Guatemala City. I want to share with you all one of the very first uh, things that we talked about was the success of CAFTA and the fact that both the U.S. and Guatemala have benefited tremendously from the Central American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, trade in Guatemala uh, in terms of agricultural products going to the U.S. has increased threefold over since CAFTA was first signed, and their volume is up to around $2.9 billion of agricultural product that goes to the U.S. under CAFTA. Uh, the U.S. has experienced uh, very similar uh, benefits from that agreement. And it's just very important, especially in this region right now, as uh, we engage with various uh, partners in Central uh, Latin America and South America, that we uh, continue to uh, discuss the mutual benefits that these trade agreements have and our ongoing commitment to, um, uh, to uh, honor and to uh, continue to, to reinforce uh, those commitments that we have between our countries. <clears throat> we also talked about biotechnology a fair amount, um, which I thought was a very, very good discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we expressed uh, some concern over uh, some lack of recent approvals and, and some timelines that the government has been on. Uh, the minister uh, committed to uh, setting up a, a dialogue uh, to have a, a discussion uh, very soon with Post and, and with uh, uh, affected uh, members of the, of the government uh, to uh, talk about the biotech approval process and getting progress uh, on that, which was a very good discussion. And then lastly, I wanted to share with you all Something the U.S. Congress funded um, about three years ago, and we recently saw the fruition of that program, was um, appropriations language to support developing educational materials and public materials about biotechnology, its safety, and the benefits that biotech crops provide for consumers, both in terms of quality, sustainability, etc. And... Um, we, uh, the U.S. government developed Spanish-language versions of all of those materials, and so I shared with the minister yesterday that we had those on hand, and he was very interested in receiving them. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to providing uh, all those materials because we think they can be a tool to help bridge the gap between public understanding of biotech and the innovation and what it means. Certainly, uh, the government here is very, very interested in sustainability, and so the minister and I uh, talked at length about how innovation and technology is uh, inextricably linked to sustainability. Um, The fact that if you want to uh, do soil erosion prevention, and they certainly have a lot of steep slopes here, volcanic soils in in Guatemala, uh, that the same uh, conservation tillage that U.S. farms have had experience with for generations, leaving crop residues on fields, uh, all uh, obviously help with soil erosion prevention. 
but they also help in terms of carbon storage at the root zone as well. And so uh, having uh, sound technology, having access to biotech seeds and crops, all works together in terms of the overall sustainability goals. And I think this is an area of uh, right for partnership and for further discussion for us, and certainly look forward to that. This afternoon, I'll be going over to the uh, Economia uh, Ministry to, to meet there and discuss trade. Again, I anticipate we'll talk about the importance of uh, CAFTA and what it's done uh, both for Guatemala and for the United States. Um, and to talk about per perhaps capacity building ideas that the U.S. could help to further uh, invest in. There's been a lot uh, so far through USAID, through a variety of uh, agencies, and uh, certainly as Guatemala uh, seeks to help improve its um, productivity on the agriculture side for, frankly, a lot of commodities that the U.S. Uh, doesn't, doesn't grow. Uh, those are certainly areas that are ripe for discussion, and we want to, to further those. And so we're looking forward to that, uh, that bilateral this afternoon. It's Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. I found this job in Batesville, which is, like I said, about 30 minutes from Cincinnati. The vice chair of the policy division for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is Tim Schwab. When I moved, my job was to develop a cow herd for them. Uh, so they went from about 25 cows and background in 2,500 head of feeder cattle, and we kind of flipped it. So we, we've had as many as 300 cows. We're, we usually maintain pretty close to 200 cows, and uh, we'll background about 500 head of feeder cattle. So I started as the herdsman, uh, and then the operation changed a little bit, and when the farm manager uh, passed away uh, from cancer, I took over as, as farm manager, and it's been a great relationship. The cops are really hands-off, and it's, you know, everybody in the neighborhood, all the businesses I deal with, I'm cop land and livestock. I'm the face. You know, they, they don't know the cop family. So, When asked by other producers what the policy division is and what they do, so I, I got a lot of faith in the policy division of NCBA, and that's part of the reason I've gotten so involved over the years with NCBA. It's a truly a grassroots effort. It's a bottom-up effort. If you're at your local cattlemen's, you have an issue, you propose it like at your uh, local cattlemen's, and then it goes through the state, and then your states can help uh, propose it here, or you can, as a member, even propose uh, your own policy, uh, and it's voted on by all the members. So it's really a grassroots effort, and that's what I just really enjoy. There's several committees, you know, depending on what your policy, specific policy is, which committee it would go to. Uh, but I just love the grassroots approach of it. But one extremely hot topic has been traceability. That's kind of gotten a little bit uh, overwhelming on social media. Uh, there's been some misnomers out there about NCBA's stand on that, and we've always been voluntary, uh, a voluntary stand on traceability. And uh we had some policy that was maybe wanting to change the wording just a little bit. We voted on that today in the uh, Cattle Health and Well-Being Committee, um, and it, it kind of got changed where it's going to follow the 2013 USDA rule, so uh, which is just for breeding cattle, rodeo stock, and exposition. So uh, I think that's, that's a good start in place. And some discussion on... LRP, Livestock Risk Protection Program. Yes, and, and that was in the uh, uh, Live Cattle Marketing uh, Committee meeting. Uh, and 
that that policy came with a lot of wording to it. It got amended a few times. I think everybody's concern there is to protect the integrity of that program. That program could be very beneficial for a young producer just starting out where he could, uh, you know, uh, take out the LRP on his cattle and, and guarantee uh, with an insurance policy, a lot like crop insurance, that he is guaranteed a profit. There's no doubt there are two sides of the coin, those who are very much in favor of what's happening and those who are not. But how do you get both sides of the coin working together? Oh, I, th- I think that's truly important, and, and that, that goes back to another thing you just have to like about NCBA. As long as you're a member, you can walk up to the microphone and speak. They want to be heard. It doesn't matter if you're a great big feedlot or a small cow-calf operation of 20 head. Everybody's got the same voice in the room to develop this policy, and there is there is some compromise, but life is full of compromises, so it's no different than life. It's agriculture today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. The outlook for uh, exports uh, for wheat. Alexander Karvastaff is Senior Economist with the International Grains Council on grain and oilseed trade. Argentina uh, looks to be well positioned to pick up the slack if there are any any, uh, declines or diversions from other origins because of increased production. There have been some latest estimates that uh, confirm the rebound in production. Russia still, because of these uh, challenges and uh, strong competition, is expected to increase shipments this year because of these huge crops during the past two years. Uh, recently, we have seen that uh, Russia has increased uh, its export quota for the second uh, half of the season and at the same time uh, lowered this artificial uh, flow price, which will support exports uh, for the rest of the season. The situation might be a bit different next year, 24-25. Current projections for production suggest that supplies in the Black Sea region in general might be tighter, Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. So if there is any slack in shipments from that that region, again, based on production prospects, other suppliers, other exporters uh, seem to be well positioned uh, to step in and to provide additional volumes to to the market. As you can see here on uh, projections, increases uh, are expected for the U.S., Argentina, Australia, and Canada. And I'm also just looking particularly at what has, what has been happening in, uh, with shipments from Ukraine. Here you can see the left-hand side, the breakdown of all shipments, grains, oilseeds, and products from Ukraine. They have been doing very well and actually exceeding forecasts um, in recent months. Some expected that in January shipments would be lower because of Red Sea issues, because of seasonal trends, adverse weather, weather at some ports. But in fact, uh, shipments have been steady compared to December, and that level was very close to what was achieved during the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which was in May 2023. So that's a very good level, a very strong pace of exports. And if we look what really underpinned those exports in recent months, it was seaborne shipments, uh, to a large extent, seaborne shipments to Asia, which used the Suez Canal. So Ukraine has been reliant on uh, shipments to uh, the Pacific Asian markets in particular, uh, to increase these uh, these shipments of of wheat, in particular in maize, so any any further issues might hamper increase uh, in shipments through the rest of the season. And also just to look tentatively ahead than 24, 25, what we expect for Ukraine is a slightly different situation uh, compared to the current year. So it looks it looks now that the shift from um, grains to oil seeds, particularly to sunflower seed and soybeans, will continue in Ukraine. Just because of relative 
attractiveness of, of prices. We already now know for winter wheat, which was uh, planted in autumn last year, that the area has been moderately lower year in year, and wheat is around 90%, winter wheat is around 95% of total wheat produced uh, in Ukraine. At the same time, maize is expected to be lower in terms of planted area because of unattractive prices. Large world supplies, body is also lower and uh, area much lower than, than the average. It looks, it looks more attractive and uh, um, more favorable for sunflower seed and uh, soybeans. We have seen some uh, relatively strong exports of sunflower seed products, uh, sun meal, uh, sunflower oil to some markets. So that might underpin uh, plantings this season and really um, intentions. There has been a survey of farmers in Ukraine recently and it really confirms that uh, farmers are more biased towards oil seeds rather than planting maize. So with that, uh, I think this shift in plantings may uh, influence uh, exports from Ukraine uh, because different markets uh, are consume these different products. And overall, we expect a, a decline in area for both grains and oil seeds for about 2% and with lower yields, a decline of around 8% uh, for, for production. It's Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. 100%. And I, I think when you speak about Guatemala, it's a very interesting market that we're, it's currently the sixth largest uh, receiver of U.S. corn. Talking about the importance of getting members to where buyers are. U.S. Grains Council's Alexander Grabois. So being able to have our members and customers really be able to, as you say, be in the field, and see firsthand how the market is and, and really how the country is. It is a great way to in, increase member engagement and, and really highlight the work that we're doing. We have uh, offices all over the world, and we've been working on projects that really highlight the value of U.S. feed grains and highlight the advantages of these products. So we want to really be able to show this off, and doing so in a market like Guatemala is one that makes a lot of sense. Grabois has been working on a project to help end users understand the value of U.S. corn. Uh, when we talk about the project that we're working on, of uh, competitive advantages, I like to call it, uh, grain storage management is a very key component. Uh, we're currently working on a project in Mexico that's helping model grain storage management practices, whether it be through trainings, uses of technology for grain equipment that can help monitor the silo CO2 monitors, inventory. And we find that this is definitely very useful in tropical warmer climates. Uh, because of the higher humidity and higher temperatures, grain can sometimes be a little bit more susceptible to spoilage or damage, uh, and, and this can impact all corn of any origin, but U.S. corn can also be higher at higher risk because of its softer endosperm, which also leads to higher breakage. So this, along with the STARS program, we want to essentially take what some customers might view as a negative or a drawback of U.S. corn and essentially flip the narrative on its head to show that this, the BCFM or other issues can be managed through proper practices and trainings, while also showing that it can be used, that some corn doesn't have to be wasted because it's a little bit broken. Um, with the storage project, we, we're currently working with feedlots and feed mills, and we've been able to really develop a good training schedule, and this helps um, incentivize our customers to take grain storage seriously and really show the impacts of, of what essentially the consequences of actions if grain isn't being stored properly or if there's maybe cracks in their systems. So the question is, will this move the needle? With our starch project, we've really been able to move the needle. Uh, we've had international conferences in Turkey, South Korea, and we will be hosting one in Illinois this, uh, this summer. 
And I think we're in a really key position where we can show the financial impacts to our buyers and really help kind of bridge that communication gap to show that there's a technical advantage as well as a purchasing advantage. Uh, we'll continue to do our commercial trials. We're also working on a steep time trial in the starch industry. So typically, corn will be steeped in the wet milling industry for about 48 or so hours. We find that U.S. corn, because of its composition, can be done for 24 hours. So it's going to be very interesting to present the results of this study and see how this can impact even further their efficiency and profitability. It's hard to say whether it'll be double for sure, but you know that there's going to be a larger impact. Um, and we're, we're definitely very excited for that. As we look into our grain storage, uh, we're, gonna, we're continuing to add partners that are really taking their storage management seriously. And we've also been seeing the impact as far as using these systems and technologies and trainings to help identify other problems that might be impacting their grain usage or grain quality. Unfortunately, as much as we would love for grain quality to stay the same, it doesn't. So being able to mitigate or slow uh, essentially the decline is, is key. And we're hoping that with the new year, we'll continue to expand within Mexico as well as other regions in the world. It's Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. Protect the Harvest got started in 2011 by our benefactor, Mr. Forrest Lucas. Dr. Mike Siemens is executive director for Protect the Harvest. Even though it seems like a long time compared to a lot of organizations like National Cattlemen's, we're relatively young, uh, but he started it back in 2011 with his basically mission to protect uh, farmers and ranchers' rights. Uh, our tagline is a free and fed America. We work very heavily to make sure that people have the right to hunt and fish if they're wildlife enthusiasts, if they're rodeo enthusiasts, Western lifestyle, but making sure the farmer and rancher has the ability to raise animals in a way that's productive and efficient for them in a good management way and try to keep at bay the activist groups and and the bureaucratic regulations and the other, you know, forces of uh, regulations coming against our producers to make life harder and harder for them. And I've been doing this since about 1998, and I will say that um, it's not getting any easier. And the forces are coming a little bit stronger these days. And whether it's through, um, again, government regulations or they keep attacking the cattle industry and or just through the animal activist groups and environmental groups, it's, uh, it's, it's a constant battle that we're always pushing back against. So there are already a lot of groups who represent farmers, whether it's general ag groups like Farmers Union or Farm Bureau, commodity groups, corn, cattle, cotton. Where does Protect the Harvest actually bring this together? Yeah, and again, in my background, and I've worked with different companies and different organizations throughout the years, so I've had the privilege of working with many of the commodity groups, beef, pork, lamb, sheep, turkey, eggs, chicken, etc. And uh, our group really tries to mm, kind of herd the cats a little bit because everybody has their own commodity groups they work with, which is important to them. We try to make sure we reach across the aisle and reach across the various aisles so everybody understands because if one industry gets attacked, it's just a matter of time for all industries to get attacked. And it's all different lifestyles, all different areas of you know what people want to do for a free and fed America is what we're trying to protect. And, you know, today here with the Cattlemen's, and I've, I've worked with the Cattlemen's quite a bit, been on our BQA advisory board in the past, and just want to make sure that uh, everybody understands the information. We try to share that information across commodity groups so everybody understands what's going on, and we can try to help coalesce and pull people together to make sure we can be their strength in numbers. And if you're, you know, if you divide and conquer, that's what the activist groups love to do. And if we try to coalesce our groups together to make sure we're speaking with one voice, kind of pulling in the same direction, we'd be much more effective in terms of pushing back and making sure the right decisions are made by either legislation or you know, active, pushing back against activist groups in, in different areas of the country. So that's what we try to do and, and do that in a very strong way. 
Then there's something happening in California known as Prop 12. Why is that important? Prop 12 was a little disappointing. The Supreme Court came back and gave us a little bit of a less than desirable read on that. We're still working on trying to make sure that can be adjusted a little bit wherever we can. Um, the one we're focusing on right now that came to light here a few weeks ago, even a couple months ago, uh, was the Denver Slaughterhouse Ban. It's basically a, a PETA initiative that's been driven out there where they're trying to eliminate all slaughterhouses in the Denver area, the Denver city area. Uh, right now, that basically is, you know, one major lamb slaughter out there, the biggest in the country. Uh, I know the demographics have changed in that uh, part of the world in that particular city, and I think they, they think that they have a good chance of being successful in doing that. It's our job to get information out there, get the right type of information, pull the right coalition together to push back and the information out there to the people so they understand what they're up against because... Once it's done in Denver, they're never a stop at Denver. It'll grow on to the state and keep going after that as they're successful. And there's some very large beef packing plants out there in that part of the world also, and that's that's kind of the agenda. They're they're very slow, they're very methodical in terms of how they try to make these moves. But if they're if if they're successful, um, it, the erosion happens very fast, and it can be detrimental to the livelihood and the lifestyle and what we're trying to do from an industry. It's agriculture today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. The one that's uh, of interest here is uh, the insurance. When you talk about abandonment of cotton in West Texas, many will scratch their head. Dr. Darren Hudson, Texas Tech. So the insurance number is statistically significant at some level, but the number's pretty big, right? So a one percentage point increase in the amount of insured acres is leading to a 0.34% increase in the level of abandonment. So from an economic standpoint, that's a pretty big number, right? It, it, and so it says that, that insurance matters. There's this other thing, I'll show you a graph in a minute. When you interact it with um, preseason moisture, it tends to really take the effect of the insurance away. Then uh, there's a rational reason for that. Um, when we talk about uh, crop insurance, it's important to not call that, call that a causal variable, right? Because it could very well be that the... Uh, Farmers are, are taking on more insurance because the weather is becoming more variable. So the, the probability of a loss is growing, and so they're taking on more insurance. It could be the other way around, too, right? I mean, so I, we can't answer this definitively. You can make a pretty strong argument one way or the other, but certainly what's happening is that insurance and, and crop failures tend to be going on. I always like to remind people, and I throw up a PDF, and I'll say, here's the probability density function on yield. And my insurance level is at 65% of my APH. There's a 35% deductible in there, right? So the existence of insurance is not causing me to go from my APH to 10% drop in APH, a moral hazard activity that drops that. At that, if I'm down in that lower end of my uh, expected yield distribution, it might expect impact my behavior at the margin. But if I'm have an expected crop, you know, and I've got the the conditions, I think I'm going to produce an expected crop. Insurance is not going to cause me to fail my crop, right? It just it just is not economic for me to do that. So I think we got to be careful how we interpret that that result. Uh, again, I said at this point, uh, the 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 pink or whatever color that is, uh, my colorblind eyes. Um, the upward sloping uh, is is that level of preseason rainfall without uh, not considering the preseason rainfall and the effect on insurance. It, the flatter curve is when we include the effect of preseason rainfall, which again goes to that same notion. If I have preseason significant preseason rainfall, insurance at the margin is not causing me to abandon my crop. Right, I've got plenty.
when it you know sort of had that mean at 10% in 1980 and 34% in 19 uh, or 2022. So the Stevens point and all, all these discussions when we start talking about okay, what's the average weather uh, and what is the anticipated abandonment? That's changed in the last you know 20 30 years uh, to where we you know when we think about long term forecasting models, we've got to probably think about this abandonment number. And weather matters, of course, and crop insurance matters. But I don't think it matters as much as everybody thinks it matters in terms of driving that decision as a whole. Certainly, I think it drives that decision at the margin. If I'm down in that low end of that distribution, I might not turn on that irrigation well as long as I would have before. I might not have put that one more application down to try to to, to boost that yield. Uh, but it's certainly not causing me at the beginning of the season to decide I'm going to abandon a crop just because of the insurance level. Harvested acres determine production in cotton, right? So to, to Stephen's point, we could have, you know, we can plant 10.2 million acres and have a, a low level of, of abandonment and have a crop that's much larger than we would at a 10.8 million or 11 million acre planted with an above average of abandonment level. So the, that abandonment rate matters. So it's really harvested acres is what drives the, the crop size uh, that more than anything. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. Slower food price growth occurred across all categories in 2023. Is that a trend that will continue in 2024? USDA economist Megan Schweitzer with the department's food price outlook for this year. We expect that trend to continue in 2024 with slower growth and more price stability across categories and potential price decreases for some categories. Such as eggs, pork, cereal and bakery products, fresh vegetables and dairy. For comparison, overall food prices are expected to increase 1.3% in 2024 versus a 5.8% total rise in food prices last year. We do expect price trends for food at home and food away from home to diverge, with little change expected for food at home prices, while food away from home prices continue to grow. And then higher uncertainty persists for some categories, such as eggs and meat, compared to others. I'm Rod Bain reporting in Washington, D.C.